The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. commit to you that we will never forsake. We stray from time to time and we get blown by the wind sometimes. And yet our foundation is firm. And for that we give you all the praise, honor and glory. We confess to you, Father, sin in our lives that are barriers from time to time if, to worshiping you in spirit and truth. Sin that are barriers in our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Sin that mars our testimony. So, Father, we, we come before you seeking forgiveness, seeking the infilling of your spirit. You might accomplish your great work in our lives that you planned before the foundation of the world. You know our needs better than we know ourselves. And so we ask, Father, that you might meet our needs. Prepare us for what's ahead. Do your work in sanctifying your people. May we be empowered, Lord, to keep up those disciplines of prayer and Bible study. Fellowship, so many others that are part of our drawing closer to you on a day-by-day basis and, and becoming more and more like Christ. Teach us to abide in you. We pray, Lord, for our missionaries today around the world those we support that are boldly doing their work, some in very dangerous places. And we pray that you might provide your blessing. As we give our offering later in the service, Lord, we pray that you would use it to bless their lives and their ministries. We thank you that we're able to care for them. And we ask, Father, that you would protect them. Give them continued boldness in their calling. We pray for the nations that these missionaries are seeking to win. We pray for the dictators and the rogue leaders and the democratically elected leaders, Lord, of the nations, that you might point them to yourself. Do a work in the lives of those who make decisions that affect millions and millions of people. 
and draw them to yourself. Realize, Lord, in a crowd this size that not every person here is in a true relationship with you. And so we, we pray, Lord, that you would, as you draw us all closer to yourself, that you would particularly call the one who is not walking with you to faith in Christ this day. For today is the day of salvation. Thank you for your word. We pray for the preacher today. And we pray that your word might go forth and change our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen. Turn your Bibles, please, to Psalm 19. We'll try to get done before the smell of the food makes its way into the sanctuary. Pastor Greg prompted this um, uh, this message today, or at least this text, um, at our family meeting. He was uh, he brought up um, our our mission as a church, what we can do as a church to fulfill and further that mission of satisfying the spiritually hungry with what. The all-sufficient Word of God. And at the time, I had three or four psalms I was thinking about doing today. And when he said that, I thought, well, that's the one I'm going to do. And Sean and I, Sean, is that the first time I've said your name in church? Sean and I, talking this past Friday about churches placing a priority on the Word of God and how vitally important. That is, and we're grateful to God for giving us a church that places a priority on the Word, places the Word of God at its center, and we're grateful for that. Hey, Jason. (laughs) And I can't go much further uh, without mentioning that uh, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year. Have I told you that already? The Word was the entire point, is the entire point. What happened back then still happens. The church gets further and further from the Word of God. And oh, We could say that Martin Luther had like 99 problems he wanted to address with the church, and he did. We could say it was indulgences, or we could say it was the church declaring that they had the ability to dispense the grace of God, or we could say it was popery that he was fussing about, but the bottom line is the church had abandoned the Word of God. We see that so clearly today. And so this German monk 500 years ago decided to call this to the attention of the church. He really hadn't planned to start a Reformation. He wanted to have a conversation. He just wanted to talk about it. And look what happened. We Baptists showed up. And so we have Psalm 19, which expressly deals with God's revelation. It's sort of a miniature Psalm 119, which you don't want me to read that text today. And there's more than just the written word of God in here, but we'll spend most of our time on that. Um. Wilhelm uh, van Gameren said this about this psalm. 
This psalm reflects more than any other the beauty and splendor of the Hebrew poetry found in the Psalter. C.S. Lewis said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. We begin with the introduction to the choir master, a psalm of, of David. Some, um, some of your Bibles may say the chief musician. Some believe that choir master is the Lord God himself. Others suppose him to be the leader of the choirs, most likely the leader of choirs, musicians in David's time that he's addressing. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even fine, much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock, and my redeemer. A couple of things about that. Um, Preaching uh, Psalm 42 last week, Pastor Greg told us that Psalm 42 and 43 quite possibly could have been one psalm because the language is similar. This particular psalm, some people might say that it, it was at some point two psalms. That's unlikely, but it's It's possible because it's so clearly a transition after verse 6, verses 7 through 14. But what I just read was a profound statement on the doctrine of divine revelation. And like the Bible teaches uh, about that subject throughout Scripture, It divides this revelation into two main categories, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is revelation of God in nature. Special revelation is the revelation of God in Scripture. And this psalm addresses both. 
James Boyce called these two parts of God's revelation the big book and the little book. The big book being the universe and the little book being the Bible. Not in importance, big and little, but as far as size. You could call it unwritten revelation and written revelation. There, there are many different terms you could use for it. We'll use general or natural revelation and special revelation. And they're just, it's, since it's broken up two ways, um, the psalm, we'll just, it, it's, it's just two points. Isn't that a relief? Just two points in this message today. God speaks in nature. That's general revelation. And then God speaks in his word. First in nature. Natural revelation. Unwritten revelation. And he says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's a that's a literary, a Hebrew literary device where the same thing is said using different words. Um, so he doesn't mean anything different from those two phrases. You're at New American Standard that says their expanse instead of the sky. They're parallel statements. Um, and we, we know that from Genesis chapter 1, verse 8. And God called the expanse heaven. So the heavens declare, the expanse proclaims. We see there. And what do they do? They declare and they proclaim. They publish. Some of your translations may say, or, 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 the heavens are telling. Uh, those of us who are musicians sang that translation um, a number of years ago in, in a special choral work by Haydn. Um, the heavens preach. How about that? The heavens preach. The sky preaches. It's very conspicuous. It's, it's, it's noticeable revelation. You can't miss it. Uh, it's not hidden. There's nothing secret about natural revelation. And what does it preach? The glory of God. His handiwork, the work of his hands. David looked up at the heavens. I preached on Psalm 8, remember, a while, a while back, talking about David, David laying down on the grass, tending the sheep and looking up at the sky. How excellent is your name in all the earth. So this, he looks at the heavens and it's not a, he's not talking about a spiritual heaven where God is enthroned. But the, 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 the blue sky and the, and the night sky, where the glory of God is declared. He could see it in the daytime, the glory of the sun and the clouds and the beauty there. And he could see it in the night sky, the brightness of the moon and the stars. Those things together, their, their size, their, their awe, their, their grandeur shouted to David, proclaimed to David the glory of God. It's as if he said, the God who created all this is glorious, and this is evidence of his glory. He's glorious because of its size. Um, he created something so big and eternal in the universe. He's glorious because of his Organization, because all that stuff works together. He's glorious in his artistry just because of its beauty. 
glorious in his goodness and his kindness because he he's created something for all of humanity to observe and and see and marvel at. Everywhere throughout the infinite universe, there's phenomena happening over and over, declaring the omnipotence of God and, and, and the orderliness of God as well. His handiwork. James Boyce said, this is the meaning of glory in Psalm 19, a revelation of God's existence and power so great that it should lead every human being on the face of the earth to seek God out to thank him for bringing him or her into existence and to worship him. But clearly, this revelation is limited. Alexander McLaren says it's limited because there's no moral element in it. No moral qualities. You look at the sky, you look at nature, you don't see justice and mercy and love and wrath and goodness and grace and compassion. But nature, creation, certainly testifies to God's existence and God's power. Paul talks about that in Romans 1. What does this glory include? Well, it gives adequate knowledge to know God, but we reject it. Romans 1, 18 through 21, 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But what can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking about everybody. Everybody on, that's ever existed. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We refer to Romans 1 quite often talking about this, but it's always important for us to see what is meant here. There are limitations to this revelation, natural revelation. We need to understand what those differences are between natural revelation and special revelation. That the testimony of the universe comes consistently and clearly to mankind. But sinful mankind, we all resist it still. We all resist that testimony. So general revelation or or natural revelation cannot convert sinners. But it does make us accountable. What does it say? They are without excuse. Salvation ultimately comes through special revelation. The Word of God is applied to our hearts by the Spirit of God. David's dealing with the physical universe here. Talks about space there, and then it goes talking about time. Verse 2, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The wonderful hymn you may have sung in years past by Joseph Addison, which, which expresses this constant communication going on, the hymn, The Spacious Firmament. 
What though in solemn silence all move round this dark terrestrial ball? What though no real voice nor sound amidst their radiant orbs be found? In reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shine. The hand that made us is divine. Day to day to day to day pours out speech, David says. By day and by night, not just a little bit of communication, but the heavens are always constantly declaring the glory of God. That's a long sermon. Pouring forth a perpetual testimony, bubbling up is the sense of that word, flowing forth. Nature preaches a thousand sermons a day to the human heart. Each day begins with light, moves to darkness, from waking to sleeping. It's the picture of life without God. Each year moves from spring to winter, from life to death. The activities of nature under the hand of God are just vivid object lessons for us about life itself. The lost sinner wherever he or she may be on the globe, stands condemned before the throne of God. He is without excuse. And David shares about that communication a little bit more. Verse 3, there's no speech, nor are there words. There are no words whose voice is not heard. The spectacles in space continuously give us... There are no words, but what we see continually give us knowledge. Unending communicator between the creator and his creation. Transmitting information through time. Modern science recognizes the universe to be a continuum of space time, and energy or information, and so does David the psalmist. Everything that happens in space and time, now you can call it an event, you can call it a process, you can call it a system or whatever you want to call it, involves power, doing work, communicating, transmitting knowledge. What scientists believe, that's what David believed too. Pours out speech. Boyce also said this, talking about that, that phrase. This is stronger in the Hebrew text than it appears in the English. For the image is literally gushing spring that copiously pours forth sweet, refreshing waters of revelation. And that phenomenon reveals knowledge. Let me share with you a couple of quotes by um, just a couple of old dead guys. Tholak, who was, I don't even know who that is, but um, Spurgeon quoted him. Though all preachers on earth should grow silent and every human mouth cease from publishing the glory of God, the heavens above will never cease to declare and proclaim His majesty and glory. They are forever preaching. Or like an unbroken chain, their message is delivered from day to day and from night to night. 
And then Matthew Henry, he died too. The heavens so declare the glory of God and proclaim his wisdom, power, and goodness that all ungodly men are left without excuse. They speak themselves to be works of God's hands, for they must have a creator who is eternal, infinitely wise, powerful, and good. And then David finally zeroes in on a particular body in the heavens when he talks about the sun in the last part of verse 4. And then he has set a, a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising. It's from the end of the heavens. It's circuit from the end of him. There's nothing hidden from its heat. So that the universe or the heavens are a tent for the sun. And, 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 and David describes nighttime sky as just a, a dwelling place. A tent or tabernacle is another word for that, for the sun. Comes out of its tent every day and it crosses the heavens, according to David, and returns to the tabernacle at night. And like a bridegroom, he he leaves his house on the wedding day. The sun rises, and like a champion running a race, he runs his course. He makes the circuit during the day. That's how David saw the sun. And it does more than just speak about God being the creator of this universe. He also uses this to undermine the, the, the prevalent pagan beliefs of his day and even Today, that same imagery was used of the sun god in Near Eastern literature. So David even debunks that. Calvin said, when a man from beholding and contemplating the heavens has been brought to acknowledge God, he will learn also to reflect upon and to admire his wisdom and powers displayed on the face of the earth. Not only in general, but even in the minutest plants. So we see natural revelation reveals God to all, and all reject God as a result. But all are without excuse. That's volume one. Then there's volume two. There's the second book. To answer all the other questions. What do you mean all the other questions? Like, why? What's behind all of this? What's the meaning of all this? Where are we headed? Why are we involved in this entire process? Nature can never answer those questions. Nature doesn't have that kind of knowledge. That's the great question, isn't it? Why? And it can only be answered from the lips of God himself, from the words of God. So God speaks in his word. David shifts. It's a, it's a dramatic shift. He, what's he do? It's rising from the end of the heavens and circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. He makes that shift really... Quickly. It's as if David's saying, creation tells us much about God, but his word tells us so much more. 
And there's no conflict between the two. There's no conflict between natural revelation and special revelation. It can't be. Harry Ironside said, there's no conflict whatever between the testimony of nature and the testimony of the Word of God. If we think there is, we're misunderstanding nature, the Bible, or both. And so in 7 through 14, he talks about the written Word of God, special revelation. The first part, natural, uh, natural revelation does not have the power to save. Special revelation has the power to save. Natural revelation gives us just enough information to damn us. But we're without excuse. The Word of God, special revelation, is enough to save us. So we have six statements there in 7, 8, and 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And each one, he says what? Of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord. And Lord, there you see it's all caps in your Bible. That means that means the word he uses there is Yahweh, the name for the great covenant God. One reason that the word is a greater revelation than creation is it tells us more about God. That's why some people suggest that it might be two separate Psalms. But David is just brilliant in this because the word he uses for God at the beginning, the first six, is El. It's just a general proclamation of God's name. It's used more commonly than um, Elohim. El is all he uses there in the first six verses. In 7 through 14, he goes to Yahweh, the covenant God, because the word of the... The Word of God, what comes from the lips of God, reveals more about God. And so we see these characteristics. The law of the... Well, there are six titles there. Look, law, and they all mean the Word of God. They're synonyms. Law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, rules. There are six characteristics about those six um, titles. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. And then there are six benefits of it all. Reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, righteous altogether. Let's look at, look at each one quickly. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The perfect law. There's no error in the Bible. It's perfect. Either in historical fact or spiritual truth. It's perfect. It gives us, as, as Peter tells us in Second Peter 1, 3, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Part of that perfection of God's Word is that it's effective. And it's effective doing what? Reviving the soul. 
There's power in the reading of God's word. There's power in the hearing of God's word. There's power in the studying of God's word. Goes far beyond any intellectual benefit. It actually changes us for the better. It revives the soul. God's word revives. Its restorative quality gives healing to the whole person by assuring forgiveness and cleansing and by giving life to the godly. Van Gameren. Second one. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It's a sure testimony. The word does not change. It's sure. It's steadfast. It's God's testimony to man. It's God's witness to what is true and what is right. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It says, making wise the simple. I relate to that. Many people with a simple education or upbringing have a tremendous wisdom about life and godliness because they've studied the sure word of God. The third one, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Precepts are like like rules for godly living. Some rules are wrong rules. God's word is right. Obeying that word brings daily blessing to our lives. Psalm 119, 128. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. They're morally right. They're practically right. They're universally right. Precepts are right because it is a revelation of a God who is holy, true, and always right. The one who knows the Word of God and the God of the Word rejoices in it. See that? They're right, rejoicing the heart. The one who knows God's Word finds joy, actual pleasure in the truth of God, actual pleasure in the relationship that comes from that truth. Precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The fourth one, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Pure commandment. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The sacred, the, the, the sacred books of many of the world's religions are anything but pure. But God's Word is pure. Even as it deals with sin, God's Word is pure. Sin and impurity in our own lives does not deny a pure Word. Pure God can communicate it in no other way. We never have to worry about the Word of God leading people into sin. We never have to worry about the Word of God leading people into impurity. 
seems to have happened from time to time. It seems to have happened because people want to twist that word. And we dealt with this recently in Second Peter 3.16. Peter's talking about um, the Apostle Paul's writings. He said, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant, unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So it can be twisted and lead people into sin and impurity. Not in and of itself. This pure word enlightens the eyes. He says, enlightening the eyes brings joy and comfort and knowledge and confidence. That really only a light in the, in the midst of darkness would bring. Enlightens the eyes. The word of God. The fifth one, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The clean fear of the Lord. That's another reference to God's word, fear of the Lord. It's interesting reference, synonym. Another reference to the law. Since the word of God produces a holy fear or a reverence for God, It's connected to the awe and majesty of God himself. You read the word of God. You hear the word of God. You you study the word of God. You meet him in his word. And you will have an appreciation for God's word that will create an awesome fear of God. Fear of the Lord. It's clean. It'll never fade. It endures forever. It'll never corrode. It'll never wear out because it's impure. It's clean. And it makes clean. And it's so perfectly clean, it will, God's word endures forever. And then the sixth one, the rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. True, righteous judgments. God's evaluations of men and things are always true. He knows all things completely. And so it pays for the believer to believe what God says. Not depend on his own evaluation. Go to the Word. Believe what God's Word says about you. That's more pure, more true, more perfect. Your own evaluation of yourself is false. Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your Word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Nothing false or unrighteous about it. He says it's righteous altogether. It's true and righteous altogether. David may have assumed that that we would be wise and that we would be logical enough to apply God's word to ourselves. And so, in essence, he's saying, read it and study it and meditate on it and, and love it and live it. That's what he's saying about God's word. That's the word's character he talks about. Then he talks about the word's value. Verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. 
What a treasure we have in the Bible. What a treasure we have in God's Word is better than gold. Psalm 119.72, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Proverbs 8.10, Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. Proverbs 16.16, How much better to get wisdom than gold. And you're just happy about the stock market, aren't you? Spend more time looking at that than you do in the Word. Spend more time taking care and maintaining all your stuff than you do in the Word. And it's sweeter than honey. Psalm 119:103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Warren Wiersbe said, The spiritual Christian does not need the artificial things of this world for satisfaction. The Word satisfies the spiritual appetite. And then he closes by asking God to, in a prayer. He closes this hymn in a prayer. Asking God to reveal his secret sins to him. Why would we ask God to do that? Because I just said no person knows themselves. No person knows their heart, their own heart. We need, we need the mirror of God's Word. It's like we, we put that up and we look at it and we meditate on it. It's like a mirror and it shows us who we are. The mirror of God's Word. Search me, O God, Psalm 139. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way, of, in the way everlasting. And so he asked not to be, not only to be cleansed from his secret faults or secret sins, but to be held back, held back to be running forward into sin. Who can discern his errors? Well, I can't. I, that's why I need the Word. You can't. That's why you need the Word. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. I just won't go headlong into sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Romans 6 tells us that sin should not have dominion over us. Of course, by allowing the Word of God to control our lives, it gives us the victory over sin in our life. That's the only thing. It's all we got, and it's enough. Because it's by the accumulation of all those little secret sins that he talks about in verse, the hidden faults he talks about in verse 12 there, that a person gradually walks into greater sin. Hold me back, God. These little sins won't add up to greater sin. Hold me back. It's vital believers confess their sins immediately. Allow God's Word and the blood of Christ to cleanse our hearts and our lives. It's a great word he's given us. 
So what do we do with this hymn of Revelation? Well, two things. We see our privilege. It was the highest privilege of the Jews for them to receive directly God's Word. It was given to them. How much more are we privileged and honored to have the New Testament added to the Old? It's important for us to rejoice at the privilege God has given, the grace God has given us in the gift of His Word. Secondly, we need to see our duty. Search the Scriptures daily, digging into them as for hidden treasures, praying God would open our understandings to understand them. Charles Simeon said, We should look to the Scriptures as the ground of all our hopes and the rule of all our conduct. To study the book of nature will be well, but to study the sacred volume with prayer will tend to our highest perfection and will thoroughly furnish us into every good word and work. And then David closes the benediction. In the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock, my firm foundation, and my Redeemer. Ought to be on our lips every day. It might be important for us to read this psalm every day. Because the meditations of our hearts, what controls the words of our mouths... That junk that comes out of your mouth was not the result of meditating on the Word of God. So who controls the meditation of your heart? Is our Heavenly Father or is Satan? It's a meditation is to the heart like digestion is for the body. It's taking the Word of God and making it a, a part of our inner being. And so my question today is, is your Bible, the Word of God, all to you that God wants it to be? Read the psalm. Love the Word of God. Live in the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. And he calls him at the end, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. You have the perfect, omnipotent God of the universe to stand firmly on, who's provided his Son through this Word, through the knowledge of this Word, so that you might live forever with Him and worship Him forever. David surveyed the heavens. Those heavens, he said, declare the glory of God. It's a wonderful thing 
It's majestic. And then he looks at the wonderful Word of God and declares His glory. The light of seeing actually two creations. Natural revelation and special revelation. David's recognized the completeness of God's creation. The order of God's creation. And the perfection of God's Word. And in the perfection of God's Word, he's seen his own sinfulness. And he comes humbly before God in prayer at the end of the psalm. He could do nothing else but conclude that God rid him of his sin and sanctify him and make him holy. Is that your prayer today? You think about that. Let's pray. We'll sing a hymn in a few moments. During that hymn, if you have questions about this message, or if you need someone to pray with you, Pastor Greg and others will be in the back, and while we're singing, you can just make your way back there. encourage you to do that. Father, we thank you for this word. This word from your word. And we pray, Lord, that you might impress it upon us. What a privilege it is you've given us. And impress it upon us our duty to search it. For those answers that show us who we are. That we might repent and trust you. Our Lord and our God. In the name of Jesus.